So good morning, ladies. It is uh, still February, but I couldn't resist a little nod to spring because it's 60-something, going to be 60-something degrees today. But don't be fooled. On Monday, it's going to be 37. So spring is not here yet. We may have the coldest days ahead of us. And let's just open today. We'll celebrate it as if it is. And let's open today and get on with it. So, Father, I just thank you for your word, that it's living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. I pray that it does that for us today as we look at 1 Corinthians 14. In your precious son's name we pray, amen. Well, it was way back in the early 80s. Kyle and I had bought our first, not our first house. We'd actually lived in Oklahoma, but we'd moved to Dallas and we'd bought our first house here in Dallas. We were so excited. It had, uh, it was a 1950s home. It had character you know what I mean. Um, it had wood floors. It had bathroom space heaters. It had that little built-in phone ledge in the middle of the hall that you used to use for the one rotary phone that was in the house. Yeah, we had one of those. So I was so excited when we, um, several years in, had enough money to redo the screened-in porch in that little house and turn it into an office, which we desperately needed because we were going to be adding to our family. So I was so excited. I scanned the magazine, scoured, pulled all the pictures, found exactly what I wanted my room to look like. And then I uh, took off and went into the store. Yeah, you know the store, the big, the big warehousey one. Cheap, I was told. Yeah, so that's where I went. And I'd scoured the whole store looking for the exact stone that would bring my room and all those pictures to life. And I found it. Then I picked up the price tag. Holy Toledo, how was it that out of this whole store, I found the most expensive stone for that room in there? And I wish I could tell you that this was a one-time event, like that it happened then and it's never happened to me again. But that's just not true. Unfortunately, I can walk into just about any store with no price tags in sight. I can sniff out, route out, find out the most exclusive thing in there. I just can. And some of you are laughing because you can too. And why do you think that is? And I think that is because all of us as fallen creatures are drawn by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, spoken of in 1 John 1, 9. And so I think that, I tell you that, because I think that's exactly the problem the Corinthians were having in this church in and Paul will address it in chapter 14. You see, um, God had already given them a whole treasure trove, trove of gifts. Gifts that were rich in diversity and application. Gifts that would build up and strengthen the church. Yet like a magnet, these people are drawn to the glitziest gifts in the pile. 
Those two that uh, we know as prophecy and tongues. And they were misusing them, especially when they met for corporate worship, which is just another way to, it's what we call a lot of times now, if you got kids, big church, or it's church, it's when we, what we do on Saturday night or Sunday morning here at Watermark. And so they were misusing them there. And what was happening? The misuse of those two gifts in particular because that's what we address today. We're creating a feeling of superiority in some, and that was dividing and damaging the entire church. And so Paul must correct what was happening. Last week, or let's go back two weeks ago to Antoinette. Antoinette really showed us um, what the gifts were and how the Corinthians hadn't really discovered all of their gifts yet, and they weren't really employing them yet for the common good. But, but Paul urged them in 12 to do so. Callie then last week showed us that in doing that, you have to use love. It has to be bathed in love, or you can gut people with what you do and how you use your gift. And so today in chapter 14, we are going to look at Paul tell us in worship, this is what love, if that's 13 was what love is, 14 is what love does within the church. And so what does it do? I think the message he wants you to walk away with today is this. God has given you a spiritual gift or perhaps multiple gifts, plural. Maybe you got more than one. How you use them, especially in worship, the worship of the church matters. So open your Bibles to 14 with me. And we're going to look at three things Paul um, will show us regarding the proper use of those two gifts, prophecy and tongues. When you properly use those, they should build the church up, they should grow the church up, and they should straighten the church up. That's what we're going to look at. So let's start with that first one, building up the church. Paul uses the word, you saw it repeated if you read that, edify or edification. I encourage you to go back and circle it. Depending on the translation you're using, he uses it at least eight times. Edify. It's a contractor's term. I should know that. My daddy was a builder. And what it means, it signifies what happens when you construct something. And I've got a couple pictures here. This is new home construction. What happens is you build a firm. It starts with a firm foundation. Doesn't look like much, does it? There it is. That's the firm foundation. But you must have it to then build up the structure, which comes next. And so that's exactly what Paul wants the church to do. He wants them to exercise their gifts. The one that Antoinette showed us in 12, even Callie kind of went over some more and expounded on that in 13. He wants them to use those to build up and make this infant church strong. That's what he wants us to do. Now, let's just pause for a moment and read what he says in those first five verses. And your translation may be a bit different, but read with me one through five. Pursue, chapter 14, pursue love, yet earnestly or desire earnestly that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. 
But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, there's that word, and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies, circle it again, himself, that's two already. But one who prophesies edifies, there it is again, the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more, even more, that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in a tongue, unless he interprets why so that, that's what so that means, why? So that the church may receive edifying or edification. So wow, it's used a lot right there. When Paul says earnestly desire the gifts, he is using a present perfect verb. And he means that's something you continue to do. But he doesn't mean it's something you should seek or go after. Because who gives you your spiritual gift? I'm sorry, who? God. And how do you know that? Where did it say that? Anybody? And we already looked at it. Antoinette talked about it in 1 Corinthians 12. It actually talks about God giving you the gift that you have to build up the body. So you don't have to go seeking something you don't have. God's already given it to you. But you should seek to use what you got. He gave you something. Are you employing it? That was Antoinette's whole talk. Employ it for the good of everyone, the common good. And so the Corinthians were making the mistake here of overemphasizing tongues, something for their own good, and minimizing or neglecting prophecy, which was for the good of everyone. And so my first takeaway right off the bat from these first 19 verses is number one, that you speak in a way that can be understood. That's just so simple. It really is. Your lesson gave you some great definitions of what prophecy and tongues are. And I want to just expand on those because I think it's critical so that we understand what Paul is saying. So I'm going to blow those out a little more. We're going to look at what tongues are and what they're not and what prophecy is. So what are tongues? To be clear, ladies, they are a known language, number one. They appear first in Acts chapter two, then in six and eight and 11. There are two Greek words in the original language that the New Testament was written in that are used for tongues. Glossa, that was in your notes, actually, in your lesson. And that's glossa in the Greek. It either means this, it even means the actual physical organ in your mouth, the tongue that children kick out at other people, or it means a known language. Or there is the second word that he uses, dialectos, speaking in a dialect of a known language. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what happened? The people that were gathered there heard the mighty deeds of God in their own language. It was amazing. It was miraculous. It was supernatural. Why? Because the disciples spoke in a language they didn't know to Jews who were gathered from all over the Roman Empire and spoke different languages in a language those people from Philistia and blah, 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 he gave you the whole list, in a language that they understood. Supernatural. They didn't intend to do that, they opened their mouth and it came out. 
Every time tongues are used thereafter in the book of Acts, that it is a known language to Jews who did not believe or unbelievers as the church was being formed. That's what it was. The second thing tongues are that Paul expresses to us here is they are a sign of judgment. Paul references Isaiah in your lesson. Uh, Who is he? What was he doing? Isaiah was a prophet who spoke to the nation of Israel at a time when they did not believe what the prophets were saying. Get it? Unbelievers. Jews, they did not believe all that the prophets were saying. Isaiah begged them to turn back and avoid the coming exile. Did they listen? No, they did not. And so in a wave, what happened? This was a time when Israel was divided into two nations because of their own infighting. They had divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so in 721 BC, Israel was invaded by what army? This is a little history lesson. Assyria, the Assyrian army or Syria to the north came flooding down. And then again, even later in 586 BC, Judah, the nation to the south, was invaded by what country? Babylon, the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. So you didn't know you were having a little history lesson today, but here we are. And what happened? The same thing that happened in World War II when France was invaded by Germany, what happened? People got a rapping knock on their door and when they opened it, it wasn't their countrymen standing there talking to them. Who was it? A Jew speaking the German language, a Gallic language. And that's exactly what happened in Israel. Soldiers swept in in a language they did not understand and spoke to them, those who did not believe. And they were suddenly escorted into exile. That's what happened. It's a sign for people who do not believe. Okay, very, very clear. So what is it? What are tongues then? Well, number one, I mean, that's what it is. (coughs) So it is A known language, it is a sign of judgment. What is it not? Tongues are not, um, they are not normative. (coughs) Sorry, y'all. What do I mean by that? Okay, they do not continue to occur or happen as you go forward in church history. We do not see them continue to be used. They were used during a specific time, the forming of the church for a specific purpose. We do see Paul spoke in tongues. Well, of course he did. Paul was the first missionary. He took God's word and the mighty deeds of God and his fulfillment of all that the prophets had told. He took it to people and places that had never heard before. Of course he did. Tongues are not normative. The second thing is, they were formative, okay? Not normative, formative. The second thing, they are not necessary. Okay, if there's anybody in your church that you would want, that you would call the super spiritual, oh yeah, I'm like, like, because again, what this did was create a feeling of superiority. Like I got something that you don't got and you should be wanting what I got. That's what it did. It created this Jesus plus something else means you really got it. All right, that's what it created. And so who in your church would you want to have something that nobody else had? 
if anybody, wouldn't it be your pastor, your elder, your deacon? Wouldn't you want them to be the most super spiritual folks in the, in the body? I would think you would. And that would mean we would surely see that tongues would be a prerequisite for filling that capacity, that role, wouldn't you? Okay, but right out here in your notes, just take a look, ladies, at 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 because that, that, those are the requirements for pastors, elders, and deacons. And you will not find tongues mentioned. You find a lot of other things. Got to be the husband of one wife. Got to have rule over his own household. Those are good things. But you won't find any. Got to speak in tongues. You won't find that there. They're not necessary for church leadership. And we know everyone in Corinth wasn't doing it. That's why there was division. And lastly, they're not nurturing or loving as we saw what love love is last week in first Corinthians 13. And rather than unite, because that's what love does, love unites. Rather than unite, they were dividing this church. The second thing we see in these first 19 verses, we see we should speak in a language that can be understood. The second thing we see is that we should use prophecy, that other gift, to build up, stir up, and cheer up the church. And I took that from verse 3. And actually, my translation used the words edify, exhortation, consolation. I just use different words. Build up, stir up, because we see that stir up in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 about community. Let us consider how to, not neglecting to meet together as a son, but all the more. Like how to stir one another up to what? What does that say? To Love and good deeds. That's what Hebrews 10, 24 says. Yeah, don't neglect. That's what it says. And so there it actually is. What is prophecy? Prophesy, prophesying. Prophecy, ladies, could be one of two things. It can be foretelling, which is something God will do in the future, very active in the Old Testament and even in the early church in the context at this time. Or it can be forthtelling. And what do I mean by that? Forthtelling is speaking forth the truth we know from God's word to use in our everyday life. Prophets bring revelation from God. That's what they do. Now, there was a test in the Old Testament given in Deuteronomy 18.20 for a prophet. And what does that test say? A prophet, when they give a, a prediction of something into the future, they must be about 20% accurate. Is that what it says? 80%. No, what does it say? 100% accurate. Because if they aren't, what does that make them? A false prophet. And, and our New Testament is full of teaching against false prophets. They will rise up. They will come in to the, to the early church. So, since this time, what's been happening? Well, when Christ came in the flesh, God gave us his final revelation. God in the flesh came to earth. In Christ, we see God in all his glory. And Christ fulfilled all that the prophets had foretold of who God was and what he did, what he does. Since the church at Corinth, however, didn't have a Bible on their lap like you all do right now, what did they have to do as 
prophecies in their church were stood up and, and given. They had to search diligently the Old Testament, the scriptures they did have to see, test and see. They had to discern like the Bereans did in the book of Acts, everything that was said. And it had to be in agreement and in unification. But as God's word was written down and canonized for us, it became the Bible that is in your hand. And now you are equipped with God's holy authoritative word with a Bible in your hand and maybe written on your heart if you've memorized it, you have everything you need to speak truth to one another. You can be a prophet today to your friends, to your family, to your community. I love visual aids, you know I do, and so I couldn't help one more chart, um, and I just took the passage that we studied and put it together, and we'll have it and send it to you later. It's small, so it's hard to, to really look at, but I'm gonna zero in on the prophecy side. Prophecy, that the audience is man, it's spoken to men, or the church for the common good, back to 12. It's from God, prophecy is a word from God to believers, this is prophecy. It is word from God to you, a believer. That's what your Bible is. It helps believers understand and God's what God's will is and obey it. That's what your Bible does. It needs no interpretation. We can all read it and understand it. Unless you're living somewhere else and that's what Wycliffe Bible is all about. Making sure people get it in the language they can understand. It brings conviction. It cuts you to the core. That's what truth does. It exposes you. That's what it does. It's done with the spirit and the mind. Not just in the spirit. It's a sign to believers, the church. It is the greater gift. Ladies, I... Um, I grew up on the buckle of the Bible Belt. I know you think that's right here in Dallas, Texas, but it's not. It's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where there were tons of churches, lots and lots of them, and many that believed differently on this particular topic that we are talking of. It was rich in Christian heritage, also full of churches that practiced gifts of the Spirit. In the 80s, one of our pastors, very well known at that time with a worldwide following and television ministry, said to the city that Christ had appeared to him, 900 foot Christ, appeared to him telling him to build a skyscraper hospital where the nations would come to be healed. He had a healing ministry. And even though the city was not in need of another hospital, he convinced them, if we build it, they will come. He made his appeal, the money came, the hospital was built. But sadly, the nations never came for healing. That building stands today. Uh, the hospital itself went bankrupt. The building is now filled mostly with businesses, other businesses. God did not get the glory here, ladies. And when tongues were used, God got all the glory. In fact, God was mocked in the city that I grew up in. I believe this man was a believer. I do believe he led many to Jesus Christ. But somewhere along the way, he fell prey to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Ladies, you've got to be careful with the gift or gifts that God has given to you. 
When families and friends have problems, do you run to God's word for the answers and the direction? Or do you spat out your opinion? Be careful, oh prophet, prophetess, because that's what you would be with God's word in your hand. He has equipped you with everything you need for life and godliness. It matters in this church and the church you might belong to if you don't go here, and it matters to the world that's watching, which takes us to the second thing that Paul advocates, starting in verse 20. He says, the gift of prophecy in tongues should grow the church up. And you know what? One of the hardest things to do in life is grow up. And if you don't believe me, watch these folks. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. They got a million toys at Toys R Us that I can play with. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. They got the best for so much less. It'll really flip your lid. From bikes to trains to video games, it's the biggest toy store there is. Gee whiz! I don't want to grow up, cause baby if I did, I couldn't be a Toys R Us. <laughs> Would be the end of it. And you know what? It's really sad. Toys R Us didn't, doesn't even exist anymore. There you go. That's what being a kid will get you. and It will get you bankrupt or just into non-existence. And even spiritually, we struggle with it, this. Like, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and I'm, I'm saved. But it's tough to then take the next step of obedience and grow up spiritually. And sometimes we don't want to. And many in this church at Corinth didn't really want to either. They were babies in their faith, and they acted like it. We know infants are dependent. We must... Uh, they're dependent and, and they can't really think or do anything for themselves. Parents, get this. We have to bathe, feed, change them because they can't do it for themselves. And we do that before we ever think of taking a shower or feeding ourselves. That's what you do as a mother, as a father. Growth, moving beyond that, will take discipline. And that's another adulting thing, being disciplined. Because, man, it's just more fun to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that's what the Corinthians were doing at church. Oh, yeah, I got this gift. I'm going to do it when I want, how I want, however I want. Childish. But the spirit working within us is the very thing that changes us. It's not the discipline itself. Now, if you wonder what the evidence of maturity is, I encourage you to check out last Sunday's message here at Watermark. Todd taught on the six core values of community. They're awesome. I've got them right up here. I'm not going to spend time on them. Go, go look at our Sunday messages and you will hear. There's some amazing things that take discipline in there. Um, and he used a house. I love that because we stopped, we started here talking about edification, a house, the building up of a house. And he actually uses Jesus' words. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 7, 26? He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the man who built his house on what? On the rock. And then he goes on and gives some more. But if you don't listen to these words of mine and you don't put them into practice, you are going to be like the man who built his house on sinking sand. Exactly. Man, the first time, and certainly not the last, that I was um, admonished faithfully and, and in love, I would add, because 
I've been admonished a lot of times. You can be admonished by people and not have a shred of love in it. And, and to figure out what that looks like, go back. Remember, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's not easily angered. And so if you're vomiting verbally on someone, you're probably not admonishing faithfully. But I've been admonished faithfully. It was about 15 years ago, um, at least in community. Colin and I were at dinner with another couple, and he was telling a story from his perspective, and he was getting all the details wrong from my perspective, and I just couldn't help myself. And even though I, I probably did say some words, I'm not really sure, but I said a lot of things without saying a word at all. Do you know what I mean? Stuff like this. I mean, you know, all the nonverbals, like, are you kidding me? And shaking my head, rolling my eyes. You can't see me, but you've seen your teenagers do it. You probably did it when you were, I was doing all of that at the table. And so our friend looked at his wife and he said, Alex, will you help your friend right now? Oh my gosh. She took a deep breath like, you've got to be kidding me. Her eyes were about as big as saucers. And then she gently, can you understand gentle? She gently made some observations and she asked a lot of questions. Not accusing and, and assuming things, but asking and how do you think I received that wonderful admonishment at that great time? Come on, come on. How did I receive it? Oh, thank you so much. I really needed that. You're right. You're exactly right. I mean, I can't believe I was acting that way right now. That's what I did, right? Uh-uh. I mean, do you do that? At the moment that it comes at you, uh, mm, I didn't. I, I was hopping mad. I was like, you got to be kidding. I mean, the story is not right. He didn't even, I mean, none of the details are. Do you not under? Does it matter? Does it matter what the details are? No, what matters is how I treated my husband at that moment. And at that moment, I wasn't giving him the respect that was due. I wasn't going to him privately later to talk about it. I was outing him right there really rudely. Oh, it's hard. But because the spirit lives in me, ladies, I gotta tell you, no words on the way home. I didn't say a word. Got home, still didn't say a word. Went to bed, mad. Mm, didn't, didn't look at the scriptures on that one either. But you know what? The spirit is in me. And he, I didn't sleep well. It was fitful. And when I got up, I was cut to the core. Because what does the word of God do? It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And it exposes you. And that's what Paul talks about here. It exposed me and I got up and the first words out of my mouth when I trundled to my husband is, will you forgive me? And then I wasn't done. Then I had to go to my friends and say, will you forgive me? That is not the woman playing the role I wanna play in my marriage. So we got to grow up. We do have to abide daily with the Lord. We do have to pursue each other relationally. We have to admonish faithfully. And are you doing that today to people in your life? When you see someone hurting around you, and you don't usually have to look hard for these people, that needs your help, are you quick to give it? 
That might be a friend whose marriage is falling apart today. That might be someone struggling with an addiction they can't seem to kick. That might be someone whose job is not going well and maybe they're on the brink of financial ruin. That might be someone whose child is prodigal to the nth degree. I don't know who it is, but how are you using your gifts in the church in a way that will help your friend, your fellow believer grow up because it matters? And that takes us to the last thing Paul does. And the last thing he does is he says that these two gifts, prophecy and tongues, should straighten the church up. The Corinthians' worship clearly from these passages was in disarray. It appears people were speaking out of turn at the same time in languages others couldn't understand, and all that did was create chaos in the house. Rather than understanding unity, love, sacrifice, they were seeing who could look and sound better at the moment. It kind of reminds me of a Judge Judy courtroom, and ladies, there's a reason that judge pounds a gavel and calls for, what do they do when they do that? They call for order in the court. And I think that's exactly, Paul is like, let's get some order in the church. And here's the order he calls for. First, if tongues are spoken, only two or three at the most. And then with, they must be accompanied by interpretation. Must be. Second, if a prophecy is given to this early church, two or three at the most, with the words being evaluated. Remember, like the Bereans, tested and seen. Do they match up? Do they line up to what God's word tells us and says? Three, that you would take turns no matter what. Ooh, that's hard when you got something really important to say, isn't it? And lastly, that women should not speak out, but submit to their husbands and their leadership. And don't get all hung up on that silence thing. We just, we want to get all hung up on it. Know that Jesus did more to elevate women in his time and ministry in the three years he was here than, than had ever been done before. Think of the woman at the well. Think of the woman caught in adultery. Think of the women that testified to his resurrection. And then your lesson was full of other ones. Gigi addressed submission in chapter 11. Go back and listen if you don't remember with the head coverings. Here, Paul is speaking to the order in the church. That's the context. Clearly, Paul doesn't mean women shouldn't speak in church. He's already told us in chapter 11, we can pray and prophesy. What he is saying is God has an order in the church just like he does in your family. Okay, now, for for a... Instruction on the family and the order that God has on the family, where do you go? Where's the first place God spells out the order of family in the church, in, in the order of family in, his, in your Bible? Uh-huh, Genesis. <laughs> yeah, in those first few chapters of Genesis, that would be correct. Yeah, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. You're doing great. You're awesome. Genesis 2 and 3, God made, spells out exactly when he created woman. Woman was created for man. He makes that very clear to complete him. Okay, then think what God also said in the early church from Galatians 3.28. Think of this early church. There were a lot of people that had been very unequal, Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave, free. And what does he say in Galatians 3.28? He says we are all equal. 
There now is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Ladies, you are equal. That's not what this is about. This is about your role in church. And again, go back to the leadership positions in the church, just like in the family, God spelled out that the husband is head of the wife. And that's a great place of protection. In the church, God has spelled out that men lead the church. Again, those are in the passages on elders, deacons, found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You can go read those there. That is exactly what he's referring to here, the teaching of the church. And he makes it really clear, we are to come under their leadership. Not that we should never speak, but in matters of leadership and teaching, that belongs to men. In my early years, I grew up in a church led by a female pastor. My dad and I both came to Christ under her teaching. So this was really, really hard for me. I struggled with this for a long time. But after studying these passages and reflecting, I realized that that little church I grew up in probably suffered for that leadership or the lack, I would say, of leadership by the men. I think that the men weren't challenged to lead as they should have been. It's very hard for a woman to explain what a man should do. And it's hard for a man to hear that from a woman, okay? And I think as a result, as I reflect back, many of those men became passive and didn't do what they should do. And guess what that creates? Kids in rebellion, marriages that failed, and families that suffered. And I can tell you from that little church, I saw exactly that in all those families. God has an order, ladies, for the church and for families. And that order is for men to lead and women to submit. God has also given you gifts. And how you use them, especially in the church matters, use your gifts today, ladies, to build up, grow up, and strengthen the church. And then let's close with Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom and teaching. teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's do that today. Father, thank you for this word. And I pray that we not get hung up when we, where we shouldn't and help us to be clear-headed and clear-eyed as we look at your order in your structure and help us to be women who live out fully and completely the role that you've given us and that we value and use the gifts as well. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen.